The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. When I was in grade school, U.S. society was characterized as a melting pot. But nothing was said about the genocide of Native Americans or the sending of Native American children to schools where their um, languages and religious beliefs were denigrated and forbidden. Um, lately, I've heard the U.S. society described as a mixed salad. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, nothing is said about the struggles, like the Chicano Power Movement, for example, that have been necessary to keep the salad a salad and not gazpacho, which is a cold soup that is made in a blender. <laughs> The mystification perversely occurs alongside a hypervaluation of science and technology. Scientifically corroborated facts are not only measurably knowable, but also more valuable to capitalism than critical thinking, which allows us to shatter the opaqueness of the dominant ideology and see the world for what it is. To point out, for instance, that science is historical as well as everything else, and that it too changes and has changed. The promotion of critical thinking is one of the key benefits of Freire's counter to banking education, the problem-posing or dialogical method of education. Um, and uh, this is sort of, this is a wonderful thing. So we're celebrating this part of Freire, definitely. In problem-posing education, as the name suggests, the word, world is not presented as a fact but as a problem, as a living entity in a constant state of becoming. Because it is unfinished, it cannot simply be known. It must be interpreted. One of the jobs of the teacher is to figure out how to present the student's world to them as a problem, a puzzle, something to be solved. Dialogical education, also as the name suggests, consists of a dialogue. It's actually a series of dialogue between the teacher and the students, between the students and each other, the students in the world and the teacher in the world, and so on. Unlike banking education, dialogical education does not assume that the teacher has all the funds and that the students' accounts are empty. Um, in fact, the teacher will have to learn from the students in order to be able to teach them anything useful to them. Students cannot be passive. They must, be they must contribute and interpret. Rather than presuming a wide gap between students and teachers, Freire introduces the concept of teacher students and student teachers. Note the back and forth that's going on there, the dialogue, the dialectic. On the table between the teacher student and the student teachers is an object of study that is drawn directly from their world. The object of study mediates their dialogue. Both learn from it and learn from each other. So the idea is to take something from the world, put it between the teacher and the students, both study it, learn from it, with the interest of trying to change it in the end. Again, nothing is passive. We're all you know, trying to figure out how to make things move forward. So how does this work? Teacher students direct their student teachers in the generation of what Freire called themes. That is, the teacher student presents to the student teachers an opportunity to talk about what concerns are on their minds. From these themes, the teacher student chooses those that are generative, that is, those that will tend to expose the contradictions lurking beneath the myths of the dominant understanding of the world. Then the teacher-student performs an act of what Freire calls codification, um, through which the teacher-student turns the issue that's being talked about into an object of study. He or she objectifies it. Um, and then together, the teacher-student and student-teachers perform an act of decodification. They interpret the significance of the object of study and relate their conclusions back to the original theme. So that's the basic process in abstract terms. Concretely, um, how this would work um, is something I'm actually planning to do in my classroom in the fall. It's something that I kind of do, but now I'm going to refine it. Um, I'm teaching a composition class in the fall semester, and I want to focus on public education. Despite the dominant ideology on the subject, I think that our government does not value education at all. Um, um, but I don't come in and start pontificating bombastically or droning on and on about banking education or ideological state apparatuses or historicity of science. Uh, not because I don't think that my students can't 
grasp those concepts, but I know that if I start with that kind of academic la- uh, language, um, that they're going to be alienated and they're going to shut down. So instead, I asked my students to write a paragraph about how they got to school that day. Now, I already know that transportation is a big issue for them. Recent cuts to an already unreliable bus service, cars that break down a lot, friends that they depend on for rides who get sick a lot, um, make getting to school a big problem. After they're done writing these paragraphs, I can either have them share them with each other or I can read them myself and and choose examples uh, to work from. I would either use these examples or perhaps a picture of people waiting for the bus or a repair estimate from a mechanic to codify the theme, that is to represent it to my students as an object of study. The students and I would look at the object and discuss it, interpreting the faces of the pe- excuse me, <laughs> interpreting the faces of the people at the bus stop or the high numbers on the repair estimate in whatever way we would. And then this discussion would lead us to relevant reading assignments, within, which I would have to go then and find. So you can't have everything set out ahead of time. You'd have to go look for it um, so you could meet the students ideally, um, which would then lead to further discussion and so on. Please note that while Frere wants us as liberatory teachers to respect and value the knowledge and languages of our students, and um, I hope someone brings up the question of language in the discussion because it's important and we don't really have that much time to go into it. He also makes quite clear the need for the teacher-student to direct the class, to have clear and well-thought-out goals based on clear politics. Frere said uh, in uh, Pedagogy for Liberation, quote, But even though you are being open to a new thing, you must from the beginning of your action have your dream. Have it with some clarity. You lose the objective of your dream when you become spontaneous. It happens to teachers and militants who lose touch with their politics. End quote. Just as Frere's critique of banking education meshes well with Marx's conception of the state and dominant ideology, a problem-posing dialogical education would seem to be consistent with Marx's dictate that a socialist revolution must be an act of self-emancipation on the part of the working class. In order to be capable of emancipating ourselves, working class people must be able to think critically about the world, to be able to see behind and beneath the myths of dominant ideology. We must be active and not passive, and we must see that values that currently seem natural and immutable, like the value of a particular kind of science or a particular kind of English, are actually historically specific and serve the needs of a particular ruling class, in our case, the capitalist class. So education should uh, reveal the class nature of the society that we live in and all of the oppression that it creates. Through the codification and the decodification of themes, the position of the individual and of classes and of social groups in the larger society should come to the fore. So students who no longer identify with the ruling class learn to read and to see the world in a new way. We learn that the world is not closed, that struggle is possible and necessary to confront inequality and to fundamentally change the world. Freire uses the concepts of limit situations, untested feasibilities, and limit acts to explain the ways in which we confront our social reality. So Elizabeth talked about generative themes, those themes that expose the contradictions at work in the world. So this diagram here, this one, is sort of a schematic way to think about um, the, all of the themes that can comprise the thematic universe in which we live. So this thematic universe, of course, it's historically variable. It changes over time. It's not the same for every location or every person. Um, so if we just go on from the example that she started with, this thematic universe could kind of be represented as a series of concentric circles, and the themes are becoming broader as you move out from the, the student's world in the center. The closest ring... Here is the transportation to school. And so inside that ring would be all the opposing forces, good days when the car works and when the bus comes on time, or bad days when it's pouring rain and the bus is late and crowded, the car is broken down and you can't afford to get it fixed. Within the rings, there are forces that coexist and contradict and push and pull on each other. 
The forces at work in these themes are not always apparent, but they're often hidden or covered by dominant ruling class ideas. So broader themes in this universe moving out from the center could potentially be the cost of getting higher education or employment and unemployment or inequality. These themes may be harder or easier to uncover depending on how strong the sort of common sense notions are in the consciousness of a student. So that is, we're all taught that we're individually responsible for getting ourselves to school, that we are to blame if that doesn't happen, that we're all paid for the value of our work that we do in the world. So if you can't afford or access a reliable mode of transportation, that's somehow your fault as an individual living in a meritocracy. So within the theme of transportation to school, there are limit situations. So here's an example. You can pull a few out from there. Um, a limit situation is something that appears at first to be unchangeable. For example, a limit situation for many students is that the cost of owning a car, gas insurance, maintenance, it's really high, but public transportation, it sucks. It's incredibly limited. Um, it's becoming increasingly more unavailable. And this situation may appear fair, or if not fair, it appears as at least the way it is. But with a little imagination, things could be real different. So the possibility of free and plentiful public transportation comes to mind, or the idea of having smaller schools and fewer of them that are closer to where people live. We could think of more, but let's just start with the idea of free and, public, free and plentiful public transportation. So this would be an example of what Freire would call an untested feasibility. It's a demand that the working class could make, but clearly would have to struggle for. An untested feasibility is the perception of another situation, of another potential reality, a way it could be. So untested feasibility, in order for them to happen, would require limit acts. These are challenges to the limit situation. So a protest at the meeting that happens to cut bus routes, or a strike to demand the hiring of more bus drivers, these, could be, these would be examples of limit acts. Any action that flows out of a full understanding of the limit situation and pushes toward the untested feasibility would be a limit act. Now we're going to go to the, the atom over here. So... <laughs> Yeah, isn't it nice? Tell her it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> so these interrelated concepts, they're components of praxis and conscientization. So Friere defines conscientization as, quote, a kind of reading the world rigorously or almost rigorously. It's a way of reading how society works. It's the way to understand better the problem of interests, the question of power, a deeper reading of reality. So this is consistent with two central and fairly well-known ideas of Marxism. First, that philosophy exists in order to change the world, not merely to be aware of it. And second, that, quote, from the Communist Manifesto, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle. Conscientization implies recognizing limit situations, untested feasibilities, and of engaging in limit acts. That is, conscientization is not merely becoming conscious of the world, what Freire would call emergence, but choosing to act, what Freire would call intervention. So liberation, therefore, is a real material act in the world and not limited to freeing your mind. It can only be achieved through ideological struggle and real on-the-ground class struggle. So praxis is a word that captures the unity of recognizing limit situations and acting to change them. Freire defines praxis as, quote, the action and reflection of men and women upon their world in order to transform it, end quote. 
It's the Marxist idea of the relationship between theory and practice. So while I can only present these ideas in a linear written fashion, Freire's theory is deeply dialectical and it shouldn't be understood as a series of stages that you go through. First you understand the theme, then you look at the untested field, then you do the limit act, then you, it's not like that. That's why we did the diagram of the atom here. He, Freire says, let me emphasize that my defense of the praxis implies no dichotomy by which this praxis could be divided into a prior stage of reflection and a subsequent, subsequent stage of action. Action and reflection occur simultaneously. That's why I thought of the atom, because I didn't really think of it. It's not just like a circular process of going around theory to practice, theory to practice. It's kind of like the way, and I don't teach chemistry, or, you know, physics. like you learn physics, whatever it is. <laughs> I don't teach that either. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know how you learn about, you know, that it's not like moving in a circle. It's like things can simultaneously be in a couple of places and jump from one to the other. So between the limit act that you do and understanding limit situation, things can move back and forth. That's why it's the atom. Okay. So <laughs> these interrelated concepts are the components of praxis and conscientization. Those list listed over there. Oh, I read that already. Let me turn the page. No. Okay. I'm back. So you might think that all of this is fine if you're talking about young adults or if you teach college. Um, but what if you teach elementary school like I do, or you're just thinking about what the hell this would have to do with 10-year-olds? So there are several limiting factors in developing any pedagogy of the oppressed with young children. And I'm going to address only two. First, like Elizabeth said earlier, the primary function of schools under capitalism is to socialize the next generation of workers in the values and interests of capitalism. This explains why, throughout history, schools experience repeated pressure from the top to adopt common national curriculum standards and to increase the standardization and regulation of what goes on in schools. This doesn't leave much room for most teachers to create a learning environment that's built from the learner's world outward, and it definitely excludes almost any possibility of seeing the world outside of the classroom walls as an essential component of real education. But there's also a common sense notion that children are just easily swayed because of their young and mushy brains and that they cannot dialogue with adults and develop their own ideas and that they're too young to intervene in the outside world. But this idea helps prop up the education system and the nuclear family, both of which serve capitalism. It's beyond the scope of this presentation to provide a Marxist analysis of the family, but I will say that we're thoroughly saturated with the belief that children are the property of their families, and as such, they're mostly expected to stay in a sort of critically dormant state until their 18th birthday. <laughs> so you can be taught about people who question the world, but you should not really do so yourself. But if you do question the world, you definitely shouldn't try to do anything about that. You should learn critical thinking skills, but you should apply that only to word problems and literature analysis analysis and not to the world that you live in. So this is a situation that will not fundamentally change under capitalism, but children can and should examine themes present in their lives. They should explore untested feasibilities and the potential of limit acts. They can study the limit acts of others throughout history. But until we change society to allow children to fully interact with their world and their environment, children will not be able to develop conscientization or a real praxis. But We've seen exceptions to this at times um, in U.S. history. Boy soldiers in the U.S. Civil War who came to understand the war as a fight to end slavery, African-American children participating in the Montgomery bus boycott, or the teenage workers striking the Lawrence Mills in 1912. You'll notice, though, that these examples of children coming to conscientization and developing their own praxis are educational experiences and activism to change the world that flowed directly out of movements and did not start in the classroom. 
So this comprises the pedagogy of the oppressed. It's much more than a set of teaching strategies, and it's consciously in service of oppressed people and the working class, which, by the way, includes most educators. It cannot be realized on a general level under capitalism. That is, we won't see the Oakland Unified School District proclaiming intensive implementation of a pedagogy of the oppressed anytime soon. The capitalist class of necessity has ideological hegemony in the public education system. Freire was very clear about this. Quote, but if the implementation of a liberating education requires political power and the oppressed have none, how then is it possible to carry out the pedagogy of the oppressed prior to the revolution? One aspect of the reply is to be found in the distinction between systematic education, which can only be changed by political power, and educational projects, which should be carried out with the oppressed in the process of organizing them. Thus, Freire recognizes that under capitalism, a pedagogy of the oppressed will be carried out by a minority of teachers, but also outside of schools, in social movements, and in labor unions. Despite Freire's clear grounding in Marxist thought, it's possible to strip away the political context of his writings and simply see his prescriptions as a set of classroom techniques. And in fact, that, that's how I was taught about Freire when I uh, took teacher training at San Francisco State University. Taking a narrow view on Freire's theory might also lead one to accept the idea that Freire felt that the best that we could hope for is a revolution in one classroom. The idea that, as socialist and teacher Jeff Bell put it, the most we can do is affect change in our own classrooms and empower students one at a time, primarily in terms of how we teach them. I think that to represent Freire in this way is to misrepresent him. Um, in much of his writing, Freire emphasizes the importance of organizing outside the classroom. In Pedagogy of the City, the book of interviews conducted after Freire had led the Municipal Bureau of Education in Sao Paulo for two years, Freire insists that, quote, that being a progressive ed educator, quote, means to motivate the mobilization and organization, not only of your own professional class, but of workers in general as a fundamental condition for the democratic struggle leading up to the necessary and urgent transformation of Brazilian society. In a pedagogy for liberation, he's equally explicit. Precisely because education is not the lever of the transformation of society, we are in danger of despair and cynicism if we limit our struggle to the classroom. In 1987, when a pedagogy for liberation was published, Freire was straight up dismissive of the idea of individual empowerment and liberation. He said, simply, I don't believe in self-liberation. Freire also goes off on the term empowerment more generally, noting that while dialogical education may, quote, develop in students a certain level of independence, this level of autonomy is not enough to transform them for making the necessary political and radical transformation of Brazilian society. That is, he thinks to talk about empowerment through teaching is an oversimplification of an incredibly difficult task that will by necessity happen for the most part outside of the classroom. As Freire and Shore point out in A Pedagogy for Liberation, social movements are necessary for social transformation, and they also make transformative teaching um, easier to, to do and more relevant. If your dream is like mine, and you want a total transformation of the economic system, a removal of one ruling class and its replacement temporarily by another until all classes are made obsolete, it's going to have to be a big movement involving all sectors of society and go way beyond the classroom. And that this is also what Freire had in mind is implied throughout Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That is that he wanted a socialist revolution. Okay, it's implied throughout the book. But in a footnote on page 139 of the book, he says this, quote, once a popular revolution has come to power, the fact that the new power has the ethical duty to repress any attempt to restore the old oppressive power by no means signifies that the revolution is contradicting its dialogical character. Dialogue between the former oppressors and the oppressed as antagonistic classes was not possible before the revolution. It continues to be impossible afterward." End quote. Now this sounds an awful lot like what Marx called the dictatorship of the proletariat. 
Um, and it's, it's, this is very interesting to me because another section of the talk that I hope that we didn't get to, that I hope you'll ask about, is how uh, Frere is misrepresented and misused by postmodernists who claim that he thinks that we want to dialogue with our oppressors when he clearly says that that's not the point at all. Um, however, despite Frere's clarity on this question, when you look at the body of his work, there are points at which he opens himself up to the revolution in one classroom interpretation. In A Pedagogy for Liberation, for example, he emphasizes more than once his respect for teachers who wish only to work in the classroom. Given a lion's share of what he argues, um, and I want to point out, I, we should respect everybody we're working with regardless of what they do. I mean, that's not really the question to me. The question is, like, how are we going to get the job done? Um, uh, so given the, mo the bulk of what he argues, some of which I have quoted above, and I could quote more, and meaning no disrespect to him or anyone else, this seems at best coy and at worst hypocritical. Go ahead and just work in the classroom, even though it will lead to your despair, um, and make revolution impossible. I respect that, but it won't be what I'm doing. You know. Okay. He said that when he was older, though, so maybe his mind had changed, which uh, Adrian's going to talk about. Okay, a revolution in one classroom strategy could also be drawn from Frere's conflation of teachers and revolutionary leaders in a pedagogy of the oppressed. At first, he places them side by side, the truly humanist educator and the authentic revolutionary. Um, and then at one point in Chapter 3, he drops teachers entirely and refers to revolutionary leaders exclusively, as he does throughout Chapter 4. This seems to suggest uh, that the roles of teachers and revolutionary leaders are substantially the same. And in some ways, I don't have a problem with this. Um, I think that teaching and revolutionary organization are similar in many ways. Like teachers, revolutionaries, and I'm dropping the leaders. Like he always says revolutionary leaders. I'm just talking about revolutionaries right now um, for reasons that are going to become clear in a minute. We have to meet people where they are um, that if we wish to organize with them. We, um, and breaking the conflation, not speaking as a, a teacher right now, but as a member of the ISO, we do this by grounding ourselves in Marxist theory and a study of the world around us, which includes listening and posing questions to the people we're organizing with and engaging in dialogue and a critical thought with them, coming to a perspective. Like teachers, revolutionaries have a dream or goal. In the ISO, our goal is a socialist society in which human self-completion for all is possible. And like teachers, we make our goal clear to the people we are organizing with, partially as a matter of respect, but largely because we want to win them to having the same goal. We have a strategy, the building of a socialist organization, and we have tactics, both long and short term. Our strategies and tactics grow out of our theory and perspectives, and we test them out in practice, in struggle, in limit acts, if you will. And based on how things turn out, we either revise our theory or our perspective or our strategy or our tactics, or we celebrate our success and we prepare for the next struggle. This is all consistent with praxis and dialogism as described in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And Adrian and I were talking about this, and we came to the conclusion, in fact, that the ISO has actually become progressively dialogical in the years that we've been members. Um, so it just depends on how you look at the terms, um, where you apply them. There are some ways, however, in which the roles of teachers and revolutionaries are quite different. First off, as Furrow points out in a Pedagogy for Liberation, in the classroom, teacher and students are never equal. The teacher has more training, more experience with critical thinking, and the authority of his or her position, which, is which it is both impossible and foolish to hide. And as a consequence of this unequal relationship, the teacher must, in addition to being directive, often withhold his or her opinion so that the students have room to think rather than just to absorb and repeat. This is partially because students are already trained in the banking mode of education. That's what they expect. Um, they're accustomed to being told what to think by teachers, and they will often resist both being told what to think and being told to think for themselves. Okay? There's lots of resistance that goes on in classrooms. 
Um, and, I, you know, I'm a, a, a college instructor, as was mentioned before, and given the level of student resistance that I've witnessed in my own classrooms, I think that this, our, our, our real concern should be whether it will have any impact whatsoever on our students. Um, but I was also reading um, a couple articles by um, an educator named Aaron Niemark about how preschool children and kindergarten children um, resist the things that they are told from above, which I thought was quite, quite fascinating. Um, one of the problems I have with Ferris' conflation of teachers and revolutionary leaders is that Ferris seems to posit the same unequal relationship between the revolutionary leaders um, and the people as he does with teachers and students. He insists on the right to directiveness on the part of the teachers, um, and here's a quote from him on this. I really like this one. I have to convince students of my dreams, but not conquer them for my plans. Even if the students have the right to bad dreams, I have the right to say that their dreams are bad, reactionary or capitalist or authoritarian. So it's, it's okay for the teacher to have an opinion. You just kind of want to pull it out, you know, when the students have had a chance to, to do their own thinking. But he seems to disallow this directiveness on the part of the revolutionary leaders. He says, revolutionary leaders should not forget that their fundamental objective is to fight alongside the people for the recovery of the people still in humanity, not to win the people over to their side. Such a phrase does not belong in the vocabulary of revolutionary leaders, but in that of the oppressor. Um, and to me, this suggests that organization is in of itself oppressive, which I disagree with. He even seems to imply the, the passivity of the oppressed. He says, after all, the task of the humanist is surely not that of putting their slogans against the slogans of the oppressors, with the oppressed as testing grounds, housing first one set of slogans um, and then the other. Now, considering the fact that working class people resist oppression despite the constant, daily, lifelong barrage of dominant ideology in mainstream education and the media and elsewhere, telling them that they're worthless and stupid, telling them that there's no alternative to the current system, telling them that humans are by nature greedy and competitive, etc., 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 the idea that teachers or revolutionary leaders could easily just inject their ideas in students or the people by speaking rather than dialoguing with them seems far-fetched to me. Like students, working class people are resistant to being told what to think. That's why the ruling class works so hard at achieving cultural hegemony. That's why they have to have this dominant ideology. They blanket us in mystification, and they give reactionary scumbags like Glenn Beck so much airtime. It's not an easy process. First characterization of the revolutionary leaders and the people as inherently unequal is consistent with one section of his writing, however, and that's the part of Chapter 4 of the Pedagogy of the Oppressed where he celebrates the politics of Che Guevara. Referring to revolutionary leaders, he writes, quote, usually this leadership group is made up of men and women in one way or another who have come, excuse me, who have belonged to the social strata of the dominators. At a certain point in their existential experience, under certain historical conditions, these leaders renounce the class to which they belong and join the oppressed in an act of true solidarity, or so one would hope. Whether or not this adherence results from a scientific analysis of society, it represents, when authentic, an act of love and true commitment, end quote. Throughout the book, he implies that both teachers and revolutionary leaders are necessarily coming to the oppressed class, the peasants or the working class, in Frere's case, and the working class in ours, from a middle class or perhaps even a ruling class perspective, and that their identification with the oppressed is voluntary, that is a moral duty. This is problematic for two reasons. The first is that it doesn't leave any room for revolutionary leaders to come out of the oppressed class, um, or the working class. And that runs counter to both Marxist theory of self-emancipation and much of working class history, but it is in line with Guevara's politics. Guevara is frequently and positively quoted in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. His politics are complex, but the idea that is relevant here is that a FOCO, a small committed armed group, can jumpstart a workers' revolution by providing a focus for popular discontent. Now, I don't have time to go into the ins and outs of the Cuban Revolution or Guevara's work in Bolivia, but in both, the idea that the revolution is brought to the people 
um, the peasants or work- workers, depending on the locality, from the outside by intellectuals or arms fighters is unavoidable. Although Guevara is commonly referred to as a Marxist and much of what he wrote and did was consistent with certain elements of Marxism, the idea of the Foucault actually runs counter to Marx's idea of socialist revolution as a self-emancipation of the working class, with leadership coming from within the working class and with the revolution necessarily involving the majority of the working class. Um, And so another question that might come up is the difference between Lenin's vanguardism and Guevara's vanguardism. The idea that teachers and or revolutionary leaders are coming from an outside position is also particularly problematic here in the United States because it incorrectly characterizes the class position of most teachers. Now, there are some teachers, professors at private universities come immediately to mind, that could be characterized as either ruling class or middle class in the Marxist sense of the word. Managers and technicians, professionals, not the everyone in the U.S. is middle class idea that we're accustomed to. But most teachers, and I include myself as a community college professor, are working class, not by inclination, but in terms of our position and relationship to production. We may be better educated and in some cases better paid, and the AFT may call itself a union of professionals, which aggravates me. Does everyone know that Bill Gates is speaking at the AFT convention? I hate Bill Gates. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, on book, okay. (laughs) The AFT may call itself a union of professionals, but we're still dependent on our labor to live. If we take our labor and go home, we will not make rent, and our better pay is the product of our struggle and the struggle of those before us, and not our expectation, exploitation of someone else. So, in arguing for the necessity, say, of working class solidarity in the face of administrative divide and conquer maneuverings, we are not coming from the outside and imposing our middle class ideas on working class people. We are acting in our own interests. Our interests and those of our students, who are also by and, then, by and large working class, are the same, both in the classroom and outside of the classroom. The main reason, however, that teachers may read Frere as condoning the idea of a revolution in one classroom is that they either have never been won to the idea of revolution or that they have abandoned it as a goal. Frere himself, because of his experience and the historic decline of the left, backs away from this idea in his later writings, as Adrian will describe it. Um, is there anybody? It's hot and I'm burning up. Could you give me some more water, me? please? Okay, thank you. If you can get over there. Okay. Thank you. All right. Um, so, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is a self consciously revolutionary document published again in 1970. It was filled with the hopeful optimism of a left that was confident that the imperialist change would continue to be thrown aside, that revolutionary guerrilla movements were on the rise, and that Mao's China represented a progressive step forward for the oppressed of the world. But history did not unfold this way. Nationalist revolutions in Africa did not develop into global socialism, guerrilla movements did not grow and win, and China has proved to be no people's paradise but a hyper-exploitive state capitalism and the world's cheap labor market. While we cannot take up an analysis of these historical developments in this presentation or the impact of the military coup that held power in Brazil from 1964 to 1984, all of these events had a profound impact on both the ideas and writing of Paulo Freire and on the generations of educators that have grown up in these now 40 years of left decline. The military dictatorship ended in Brazil in 1984 following a wave of militant working class strikes in which the Workers' Party played an important role. And while Freire always maintained a hope and a belief in the capacity for human society to change, his writing did lose the language and the goal, I would argue, of revolutionary change. Fundamental transformation of society through the action of organized men and women overthrowing capitalism is replaced with the word utopia throughout Freire's later work. There's a reason that this word does not appear once in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. 
Friere's utopia carries a sense of eternal striving, not because his dialecticism won't allow him to put an endpoint on history, but because the defeats of the past have now changed the goal from revolutionary to striving for the best possible conditions under capitalism. In 1992's Pedagogy of the City, Freire writes, quote, My utopian dream has to do with a society that is less unjust, less cruel, more democratic, less discriminatory, less racist, less sexist, end quote. Now, don't get me wrong. This is, of course, one goal of any revolutionary, to be sure. But another goal, without which there will be no true human liberation, is the elimination of the capitalist system that reproduces injustice, racism, sexism, and discrimination on a daily basis to divide and weaken the working class. Only then will we be able to create a true education in which all the racist, sexist, homophobic ideas that pollute our world can be systematically confronted and eliminated. So many of us in this room who are teachers, or who have been teachers, we came to teaching in a period of reaction against the widespread radical left ideas of the 60s and early 70s. Following the conservatism of the 80s, we confronted the assault on so-called politically correct speech and behavior, which is really a debate that was just cover for belittling left-wing critiques of culture and politics. We saw affirmative action rolled back and segregation in the schools reassert itself with a vengeance, all in the context of an increasingly standardized and de-skilled teaching climate. So what had happened? The dominance of third world nationalist politics in the U.S. meant that most leftists had turned away from the working class when revolutionary politics were sorely needed to connect the flagging economy of the 70s to an increasing right-wing political climate. There was certainly no American peasantry to speak of, and unfortunately, the Trotskyist groups were small and largely marginalized. The collapse of the Soviet Union, a country that some incorrectly looked to as an alternative to U.S. capitalism, had an extremely disorienting effect on the global left. And this provided fertile ground for the blossoming of postmodern ideas in the U.S. that fully rejected the centrality of class and of the working class in particular. So college courses examining the myriad intersecting oppressions were plentiful, but lacking in any sense that this state of affairs could be challenged beyond ideology. The poisonous notion that education is neutral was replaced with the equally poisonous idea that discourse and micropolitics were the limitations of educative practice. But thankfully, Paulo Freire did not go so far as the majority of the postmodern theorists of the 80s and 90s. He did not reject the totalizing notion that global capitalism was the root cause of continued suffering and oppression. But he did make a sort of peace with what he called progressive postmodernism. In 1993, he wrote, quote, Instead of decreeing a new history without social classes, ideology, struggle, utopia, dreams, which day-to-day -day living throughout the world bruisingly negates, what we need to do is reinsert into the center of our preoccupations and efforts that very human being who acts, thinks, speaks, dreams, loves, hates, creates and recreates, knows and ignores, affirms and denies, constructs and destroys, and who has both inherited and acquired traits. In this way, we restore the profound significance of radicalism. Now, this is a far more individualized notion of radicalism than the Freire who wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which consistently placed both teacher and student as subjects in a history that could potentially be transformed through collective action and organization. There is little significance in individual radicalism unless it is aimed at finding and uniting with others who can go beyond individual acts to organize resistance and struggle. Freire made this peace with progressive postmodernism a couple years after retiring from his position as Municipal Secretary of Education in Sao Paulo. And I can only understand Freire's attempt to incorporate this individual subjectivity as reflecting the difficulties and the struggles that he experienced attempting to reform one of the largest school systems in the world in the absence of class struggle. 
But despite our, criti our critiques of critical pedagogy and of Freire's theory, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is a groundbreaking work that refuses to ignore the links between education and social transformation, while not mistaking education as a path to revolutionary change. Much of what Freire argues in Pedagogy of the Oppressed deserves to be defended and revived against some of the postmodern, post-Soviet Union collapsed critics, and not to mention Arne Duncan. Those critics who are so convinced that Lenin led to Stalin, that Marxism and Freire are over-totalizing, that the time for mass political parties has passed, unfortunately the anti-party Lenin led to Stalin dogma is a position that's held even by those who champion Freire and critical pedagogy. I would agree with Peter McLaren's claim, and he wrote that, quote, contemporary critical pedagogy needs to rescue Freire's work from the reformists who wish to limit his legacy to its contribution to consciousness raising. So while Freire believed that, quote, dialogue cannot exist, however, in the absence of a profound love for the world and for people, end quote, love for the students cannot become a substitute for the organization and struggle that will be required to improve our teaching conditions. So take Peter Roberts, for example. He wrote, without the profound love many teachers have for their vocation, they would not be able to put up with such shameful wages, under-resourcing, and poor working conditions. In quote. But in fact, Freire never exhorted teachers to tap into the love of their students to put up with working conditions. <laughs> he said that teachers cannot teach well because of low salaries and because of the lack of respect and that we have to fight against this every step of the way. So unfortunately, some teachers not only uh, model through putting up with, um, but they directly teach a strict individualistic, what I would call middle class perspective on social improvement to their students. So Pedro Noguera, who many people in this room have probably read, writes of using, using problem-posing education to get young men of color at Rikers Island Prison to, quote, recognize their own capacity to free themselves. He talked to them about the prison industry and how policing was set up to keep black and Latino men like themselves behind bars. Now, I agree with that. Okay? And these sort of discussions are good. But a critical pedagogical approach would have been to examine some untested feasibilities like an end to the death penalty, the abolition of prisons, increased funding for drug rehab, demands for job programs in the inner cities, anything that would attack the root causes of incarceration and racist injustice in this country. But instead, Noguera hoped that just a few of these men would, quote, reject the idea that using violence to get what you want was legitimate or that taking advantage of the weak and vulnerable was justifiable. Now, what I find most problematic about his writing is that he critiques Freire's dichotomous concepts of oppressor and oppressed, revealing that he does not share Freire's understanding of the oppression that flows from the capitalist class down onto the necks of the very young men that he was trying to reach. So Noguera wrote... Quote, the terms Freire used, oppressed and oppressor, liberation and emancipation, are increasingly outdated and anachronistic in contemporary usage. Is a low-level drug dealer or pimp a member of the oppressed or oppressor class? What about Bill Gates or Warren Buffett? Both men are also among the largest philanthropists in the world. Neither uh, two years ago neither falls easily into the types of categories that Freire relied upon as he made the case for pedagogy of the oppressed. Yeah, he wrote this in 2008. I hope that no one here wonders which category Bill Gates and Warren Buffett belong in. <laughs> they are oppressors. <laughs> Freire's terms are neither outdated nor anachronistic, but they're the casualties of the left's decline. 
In this period of global economic crisis, of money for charter schools and war, of bailouts for banks while school districts go broke, I hope we can be part of reviving this vocabulary amongst ourselves as activists and in our classrooms. But we should not expect this to happen without a long-term fight led from the bottom up and involving far broader layers of students and workers than we see in the streets today. Freire wrote that only, quote, when the revolutionary cry is in power, then revolutionary education will take on another dimension. What was before an education to contest and challenge becomes a systematized education, recreating, helping the reinvention of society. Without revolutionary movement, we will be limited to winning fleeting reforms that, while important, do not even approach the ontological vocation of humanity. To engage in building revolutionary movement is to bring back the best in Freire. He wrote in Politics and Education that true progressive educators, quote, force the state to comply with its responsibilities. They can never leave the state in peace. They can never permit the dominant classes to sleep in peace. And that's what we need to do. Thank you. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.